0: I just finished up a month long tour of Europe and the final night was in Eastbourne, England, somewhere on the coast and I stayed in a pub, they had some rooms upstairs that they rented out to people and I stayed in one of those but I'm told that this pub was the second oldest in all of England and it was built in 1180 AD, had the original oak beams, two huge fireplaces, there was a cemetery outside my window, it's just a beautiful place and went downstairs into the cellar. They told me that they used to keep dead bodies down there. And there was kind of catacomb type situation. And there was a secret passageway that led out of that cellar underneath the cemetery over to the church next door. And they would keep dead bodies in the cellar and wait for them to bury them. They would take them across the passageway to the church and then bury them. And of course the place is supposedly haunted. You know how I feel about that though. But I'm really happy to be back home, and I sometimes say that touring is a full-time job. It doesn't always pay that much, but sometimes it has a really nice benefit package. friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and it feels great to be back home. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. and I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it and everything else is an artificial filter. And this is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Kevin Gordon. Kevin is a singer-songwriter, guitar player. He's also an art collector and art dealer, and he lives right here in East Nashville, Tennessee. And you can find out everything you need to know about Kevin at kg.kevinGordon.net. Kevin's one of my neighbors here in East Nashville. And he invited me over to his house, and we sat down in his living room and had this conversation. And we were surrounded by all this beautiful art. I recommend you go into his website and taking a look at it. It's well worth seeing. Here's Kevin Gordon.
1: Yeah, one one unfortunate uh, February, many years ago, I, I was living here. I think this was winter of 97, maybe. We're in there. Um, I had been um, booked to open two shows for Gate Mouth Brown in Iowa uh, some February weekend of that year. And uh, at the time, I was driving a a vehicle that had been handed down to me from my father-in-law, which was a diesel Suburban. Very cool ride. You know, the only thing was, you know, the the deal about in the winter diesel fuel, you have to switch over to what's called the winterized diesel, which does not gel up when the temperature gets too cold. Well, uh, I was playing a bit of uh, fuel tank roulette with that. You know, I I had, I apparently ended up with too much non-winterized diesel in the tank as we headed north. And we had left the night before the first show because there was a a winter storm coming from the west that was going to hit Nashville. So we had left at midnight and were driving towards the Quad Cities, towards Davenport, which was the first gig. Sure enough, man, once we got far enough north, truck started slowing down and, and that's the cruel thing it'll still run but it just slows down you know so by the time the sun's coming up you know we're creeping we're we're we're, we're southeast of the quad cities by about a half hour and we're going like 30 miles an hour <laughs> and and that. The state of Iowa that weekend was the coldest place on the North American continent. Uh, It it was unbelievable, man. And I lived up there for five winters, you know. This was just beyond belief. (laughs) So finally, we get pulled over by a state trooper. And I explain the deal. And so he he escorts us into a little town outside the Quad Cities, Milan, to the Chevy dealer. And I jump out and I tell these guys what's going on. So they they let me pull the Suburban into the heated garage and let the fuel <laughs> dissolve again. So that's good. That gets us to the hotel, check in, go to the gig, play the gig. And it's just, it's 40 below. It's crazy. The wind's blowing, snow. Weird shit's happening. You know, the electronic locks are, are operating of their own volition, you know, <laughs> um, get back to the hotel and I'm thinking, Oh man, what am I going to do? Cause it's, you know, of course outdoor parking garage and there's no place to bl- plug in a, the block heater. There is a block heater on the truck. Oh man, what am I going to do? You know, I guess I'll just leave it running. So I, I, Left the ignition key in, in, in the slot, motor running, took all the other keys, locked the doors, and we, we had left the gear at the venue uh, because, you know, we do that sometimes for security reasons anyway. Go to the bar, drink with Gates Band at the bar, and Gate Mouth comes down, and he's wearing his pajamas and uh, no no hat wearing his pajamas and his slippers, and he's come down to get a glass of buttermilk. (laughs) (laughs) Great, man, you know? Uh, So we have a big time, go to bed, get up the next morning, stuff in our hands. We're walking out to the garage, walking up the landing there to where the truck's supposed to be parked, and it's gone. And it's one of those things where you kind of look around and go, Okay, is this is am I really in the right place? And yeah, the truck's gone. <laughs> so we go back to the hotel and explain to the manager what happened, and she was great, you know, sat in the lobby, she called the cops for us, and so we sit there and meanwhile, Gate Mouth and his band are coming down so they can get on their bus and they have kind of this older very old antique kind of greyhound looking thing. Uh, you know, it's kind of smoldering down there uh, in, in on the street. Um, and Gates holding court, he's smoking his pipe, feeling very good. And he asks us what's happened and he's, you know, very sympathetic. He's like, well, y'all should just ride with us. Just get on our bus and, and we'll take you to the gig, you know. Meanwhile, behind his back, some of his band members are looking at us going, no, 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 no. You know, like doing the slash throat thing with their hand, you know. And one of them explains uh, out of earshot to Gate that they have an exhaust leak on their bus and it's making them sick. People are having to get up and go puke because it's making them so ill. So we we're like, okay, that's not that's not gonna work probably. Um, as luck would have it, got a phone call about an hour later, and the cops in Rock Island found the truck still running, parked at some kind of industrial pumping station or something. You know, these huge trucks that go suck water out of places. I don't know what they're called, but so I ride with the cop, go get the van. Go get the bourbon. And uh, apparently all that was needed was a ride home. You know, there was nothing harmed except the broken window. Uh, somebody just needed a ride home, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there was a snare drum in the back, you know, still there. You know, we, we talked to these guys at this business where we pick up the truck and they're immediately, they're just total racist jerks. And they're blaming it on, you know, somebody who lives in the housing project down the street, you know, and ranting and raving, you know. Okay, man, thanks. Thanks. Uh, See you later. So we go back to the hotel and Gates sitting in the lobby. He has his own version of (laughs) events. But, you know, so lucky to have gotten the truck back. You know, of course, we had to ride to uh, Cedar Falls with a cardboard window, uh, which was you know, pretty frigid. Yes, um, I was born in Shreveport and grew up in Monroe, which was about 800 miles east of there. Uh, also lived in a little town between those two called Ruston, uh, home of Louisiana Tech. Um but didn't really leave North Louisiana until uh, I went to grad school in Iowa. You were accepted into the writers. Uh- yeah, it's the University of Iowa um, Writers' Workshop, okay. and um, it's it's the oldest program of its kind. It's a graduate level creative writing program, and um, pretty selective. So I w- I was such a slacker that I-, I was going to apply to several of these programs ended up I only applied to Iowa and I had met with one of their faculty who had visited our college and she encouraged me to apply to send some stuff there and I got in and I I had let all the other deadlines pass uh so I figured okay this is what I'm going to be doing for the next two years you know and it was it was good man you know uh except for the winter you know um you know learned a lot uh you know it's an ego circus, you know, for better and worse, yeah you know,
0: didn't Vonnegut go to the writer's school there and uh the-
1: yeah, and he he taught there off and on, i believe uh he he came while I was there as a visiting uh uh just for a reading, you know uh but he he definitely had a presence in that town um, he owned a house. He kept a house there in Iowa City for a long time, and it was referred to as the Vonnegut House. But uh, yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. The uh, the fiction writers were the people who were really serious, and you know, their side of things. That's where you had you know editors from New York flying in every every week, every two weeks from the New Yorker, the Atlantic, whatever, reading work. Well, I wasn't on that side. I was on the poetry side,
0: <laughs> and we
1: were kind of the, you know, the juvenile delinquents of the workshop. You know, uh, at least our our little gang of, of uh, you know, uh, criminals. Uh, but we had a great time, and uh, it was just fun. You know, it was the first time I was kind of allowed to, you know, take what I was doing seriously, feel comfortable you know because you're surrounded by people who were way into it as well you know even though poetry i mean ridiculous you know i mean um, as far as uh, any sort of income or or stardom you know i mean i guess there is a little hierarchy there but that's what used to drive me crazy about uh, sort of the faculty infighting that would go on there sometimes was that the the stakes are so small? I mean, it's like, what are you worried about? I mean, you know, so it's, uh, it, it's kind of ridiculous, but it's it was a really good thing for me to do. I learned a lot, and it it exploded my my world.
0: Well, when I think of Iowa, musically, I think of Greg Brown and Bo Ramsey. And I really, I can't think of anything outside of that except for the buddy Holly Crash site. Yeah. What else uh, am I missing? Um, Let's see. There's a great, great guy there named
1: Dave Moore. Absolutely wonderful. Um, I think he still puts out records on Red House. I'm not sure. But um, he's one of the first people I met when I moved to Iowa City. And uh, I met Ramsey about a year in... uh, I've been there about a year, and he asked me to join his band. He was putting a new band together, so it was a great thing for me you know he he was a great mentor you know. uh, very old school band leader you know uh help me help me get my shit together you know
0: in what way would it was he an old school band
1: leader well he 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 holds in high esteem the real old school like Ellington and you know, even people like Muddy Waters, you know. Yeah. Those guys, you know, Wolf, you know, they, they, they knew how to run the the band, you know. Yeah. And were, as far as I can tell, fairly merciless about it if they had to be. You know? <laughs> so um, I think he just always has had tremendous respect for those, those guys, and I do too, you know. Um, so it, it was good for me to... Learned from him in many ways. I mean, playing as well as, you know, the, the the music business side. But we had, you know, we had a couple of good years of... Oh, well, there's that, you know, there, there's the, the place, the, the last place Buddy Holly played, the Surf Ballroom in Clear Lake, which is a beautiful old ballroom that's been restored uh, tastefully is from what I remember. Um, And one of the cool things about that is there's, there's a little, there's another small room in there that I think is just a bar. I can't remember. It's been some time since I've been there, but uh, Eddie Cochran uh, was born not too far from there across the state line in Minnesota. And uh, there's this whole wall dedicated to Eddie Cochran. And it's all these incredible photographs that I've I'd never seen before. Um, and he's always been one of my favorites of the of those you know the early rock and rollers. You know, always thought he was like one of the most talented all around guys. You know, uh, love his guitar playing. So anyway, that that that's just kind of a cool thing about that. That, that there at the surf, they have this Eddie Cochran shrine. You
0: know, I was there. 13 or 15 years ago but i don't remember much other than just being there yeah and uh just because of i knew it was where buddy holly played his last gig yeah and then we went to the crash site i've been there a few times but what struck me is there's there's marijuana growing wild up all around uh, where the site is really yeah and my buddies went ahead and my best buddy todd and uh <laughs> my buddy Chris, rest in peace, decided they were gonna pick a bunch of it, roll it up, and smoke it at the campsite that night. Cool. They said it was horrible.
1: Oh. <laughs> Came to Nashville. Um, ironically, you know, it was, it was uh, myself and and my then girlfriend, now spouse, uh, who we moved down here together. And uh just ran into great resistance um, from landlords who, you know you know you had to show proof of uh, you know having a regular job and didn't matter what you had in your savings account. didn't matter that you had just landed, you know um, So ironically, the only place that would rent to us that we could find was in Green Hills. You know, uh, Woodmont Terrace Apartments. Very nice, actually too nice for me. It was like the worst creative year of my life, I think. Um, uh, but uh, we, after a year of that, we moved over to, uh, uh, you know, what is now called, uh, what do they call it, Sylvan Heights, um, to the east of Sylvan Park, <laughs> uh, where there used to be this... Uh, all this veterans housing that was built after world war 2 there were brick duplexes with they were cool you know wood floors plaster walls straight ahead you know uh so we lived there for a couple of years which was a pretty interesting mix of people and uh, those places are all gone now i think uh they've been it's been redeveloped into some sort of mic yeah uh, Condos Man. and McMansions. Yeah. Yes. McCondos. Condos. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, after we got uh, married in fall of 94, we started looking for a house and ended up over here because we were looking in Sylvan Park and we were looking here. And this was before it really blew up over here. And kind of found this place and we're like, sure, you know. Smartest thing I've ever done, as far as anything financial. You know.
0: uh, well, you were one of the early ones here in East Nashville. Then October of '95, been here since then. What was the neighborhood like
1: then? Um, our block was much different, although still, you know, in terms, you know, people like to talk about—is it safe? You live on a safe block and this is actually one of the quieter blocks for criminal activity. Yeah. Not that this is all I think about, (laughs) uh, but some people do. Yeah. Uh, usually those who live in other neighborhoods. Um, uh, but you know, I've seen tremendous change. The big house right across the street there was a total eyesore. And it was also one of the largest houses on the block. And, um, you know, when we moved in, there was um, um, I, I guess it was an Indian family where there was there was an, the old man who was kind of the patriarch and his wife and his daughters, I guess if I remember right. And every morning, this must have been some kind of cultural thing for them. Pardon my ignorance. Um, every morning he would come out and sit at the front of their walkway to the front door, sit at the edge of the sidewalk in a chair and just observe all day as if he were like standing guard. You know? And, uh, it was very interesting. Um, he, he would never wave at me. He got to be quite friendly with my wife, um, waving, <laughs> waving that is. But, uh, you know, there was cra- there was, Otherwise, there was crazy stuff happening over there. It was broken up into three apartments or something. And somebody bought the house years later and turned it into, you know, the beautiful restored place it is today. Um, so we've seen lots of changes like that. Seen people die off. The two old ladies who lived across the street when we first moved here, they're they are gone. You know. And, uh... You know, I guess that's something that everybody deals with if you live somewhere for long enough, you know. That's the deal, you know. Yeah. You get old, you die, and somebody else moves in,
0: you know, and things change. Who were some of the musicians that were over here in 95?
1: Well, when I first started coming down here, uh, making kind of exploratory trips from Iowa City, Bo and I would come down. Because we had a place to stay, and that place to stay was right around the corner uh, at 310 Chapel. Uh, And let's see who all lived there over the years. Um, Brad Jones, Brian Owings, Scott Esbeck, um, uh, gosh, who else? I think McMahon lived there for a little while.
0: Joe McMahon?
1: Yeah, uh, but legendary... A uh, band house, you know, uh, so we would stay there. So it's kind of it's kind of weird that I'm a quarter mile from that place where I first landed. You know? So uh, those guys were around and 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 helped a lot as far as kind of steering you in the right direction, you know. Although you know, why didn't somebody tell me to not? Don't wear a tweed jacket to go see the guy at BMI. Don't, you know? Don't. And <laughs> what was I? What? I'm afraid I was I was under the sway of family <laughs> a little too much. And uh, thinking back about it now, I just crack up, man. It's ridiculous. Um,
0: Is this advice for young people?
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, you know, come as you are. Um, but so it took a couple of years, you know, just to kind of find my my footing. I had a publishing deal for a year, actually through a manager who was from North Louisiana, and I think he just kind of wanted to help me get get my bearings by helping me pay my rent for a year. Then it did help. I did enough of the cubicle uh, writing. To realize that there really wasn't for me, I wrote some of the worst songs ever. (laughs) Personally, you know, in my body of work and the world, you know, in my opinion, Uh, just trying to you know pander, which I just I just despise that now. You know, I can't. Everything I've done since is a reaction to that. I think. Right after I lost the publishing deal, I, I met Gwyl Owen, who became uh, one of my best friends and my the first person I was able to collaborate with musically and actually make good things, you know, that sounded like me and that were well written. You know? uh, so we hit it off really good, like right off the bat. Four or five of those first songs we wrote are on the first record of the Deuce and a Quarter was a song I had written with Gwill after um, cutting what would be the first record for Shanaki. We had four songs they were all very different from each other. And one day I got a phone call from a manager who was managing Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana at the time. Um, and he asked me if I had any more songs that I'd written with Gwill, um other than what would be on the record. And I said, well, yeah, we've got these four But they're all really weird. Nobody's going to cut them but me, you know. So I sit down, and uh, I I think it's an utter waste of my time. I I sit down with an acoustic guitar, which the one I had at the time was not very good. I can't even remember what it was. Uh, Singing through a beat-up 58 that I'd been using for about 10 years. Going through uh, a Boss analog delay uh, pedal guitar effects pedal that I still use today um, into a cassette deck. So I made this brutally primitive vocal guitar demo of these songs and sent them to Dan. And the next thing I know, he calls me like two weeks later, and he's like, we've been listening to your song. We've been riding around Manhattan in a limousine. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a manager, so you have to take everything with about a pound of salt. <laughs> Which I did. And I was like, yeah, 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 all right, you know, exciting, you know. Well, when's the session supposed to happen? Well, it was about five weeks. You know, I think he called me like in May, and the the session was supposed to happen in early July. So, you know, it's like, oh, boy, you know, exercise and anxiety. And he told me about some of the people who were going to be involved, and it didn't give me any cause for uh, relief,
0: (laughs) <laughs> uh,
1: Keith Richards, Scotty Moore, DJ Fontana, um, Danko. Um, who else was around? Levon Helm.
0: Levon, of course. Marshall Crenshaw playing bass. I thought it was Danko, but is it, you think it's Marshall Crenshaw? On the YouTube video, uh, he's in it. So I don't know if he's playing bass or not. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I, I need to go back and watch that.
1: Um, um I don't think it's Fontana playing drums. I think it's Stan Lynch from the Heartbreakers playing nice. drums. That's what somebody told me. Because um, having seen DJ play at that time and hearing what's on the record, stylistically they are different. Um and I, and I you know, I love everyone involved there. So um to me it it sounds like somebody else, you know. It's not Levon. Um So, uh, you know, time goes by and the next thing I know, um, I hear from Gwill and he had gotten a phone call in the middle of the night from Jim Harrington, who is a mutual friend of ours, who
0: great photographer,
1: great photographer, uh, we did not know had been hired to shoot still photos of that session. And he had been listening to the song being recorded all day, didn't didn't know whose it was. And he finally asked somebody and when he found out it was ours, he, he called Gwill. He may have called me too, but we were, we were in Iowa at the in-laws place, um, at that time. So, uh, that's how we found out that it had been cut.
0: And, uh, Jim Harrington lived in the neighborhood at that time, didn't he?
1: Yes. Over on Shelby.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh,
1: you know, hearing it for the first time was very surreal. Still is, you know. Um, it's it's just, you know, it's just weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad it happened. I'm, I'm flattered that they cut the song and, you know, feel lucky that it happened, you know, considering the personalities involved. You know, that was my question. Will Will all of these people show up in the same room and be conscious at the same time (laughs) Uh, I say that with all love and respect Uh, so you know it came out on that record tribute record for them called All the King's Men and the label that it was on went bust about a year, year and a half later I think Um, so now I think it only exists on that video About 15 years ago, I I developed kind of an obsession with what is called uh, contemporary folk art, what is called outsider art, what is called art brute, what is called, God forbid, naive art. Um, That one's kind of done, thank God. Um, Work done by people outside of an academic background and generally operating outside what would be considered the cultural mainstream for one reason or another. Um, most of the work I am drawn to personally, uh, is by Southern artists. Um, much of the work I collect is African American work. Um, I just, there, the aesthetics in play there, there are things that I just love about it. Um, And I guess having been a kid who grew up in in what was still a very segregated South in the 70s, um, the proverbial other side of the tracks, uh, actually it was real, and you didn't go there. And you were told that nothing happened there (laughs) except, you know, drinking and bad things. Uh, and when I discovered this art and started learning about things like the entire, there's an entire tradition of African American yard shows. Uh, some of you know, which applies to some of this work um, that we're seeing here. Uh, the, these paintings on on sheet metal here were by Mary T. Smith, uh, who lived in Hazelhurst, Mississippi. Um, She constructed this entire outdoor environment uh, somewhere around 1980 uh, through about 85. Um, The older pieces are generally on these sheets of tin. And she would hack them into the shapes she wanted using a hatchet. Um, And she would just paint portraits of her neighbors, of the guy who worked at the bank, Jesus, um, three ladies who might stop and visit her, uh, who might see the the paintings, you know, facing the road. She happened to be. Uh, I, I still don't know how she came to own the property. She did. She owned like an acres worth of land right on Highway 51, which is the main drag through Hazelhurst. It runs parallel to I-55, um, and she lived south of downtown Hazelhurst. um so a lot of people saw the work and uh at some point you know she just she had had a hearing impairment all her life so felt i think felt kind of uh isolated and uh her son had collected had brought in a load of sheet metal he was going to build a shed with it and uh while he was gone, I guess he was out of town or something, he, she started doing these paintings and, and would start off in, with a whitewash background and then, you know, whatever paint she could find. And on some of the older pieces, like this one, you see like she's added some sort of thing that looks like a handgun but is not. Um, just very interesting found object sorts of things but she's always fascinated me um uh, and that's just one that's just one artist i mean we have walking sticks over there by david allen who's from homer louisiana uh, who's in the smithsonian he's more well known in louisiana than he is nationally he's a great old guy he was in uh, one of the black regiments that stormed uh, normandy on d-day and here that guy You know, to be able to sit there in his house and listen to him tell you about that while he's making one of these sticks, you know, which I know y'all can't see it, but, you know, they're, they're very African looking, um, the symbology, um, snakes and alligators and butterflies, uh, patterns burned into the wood and, and, um, uh, you know, crosshatch carving in places. Anyway, it's just, I just love experiences like that, you know. For one, because there there aren't, that generation of people is basically gone. And um, just to hear the stories, you know. Yeah. Uh, To talk about this guy sharpening his carving knife on the side of a rail, you know, on a railroad track. I don't know if you can actually do that. But he he told that story when he was a kid, when he first started doing this. That's what he would do. He would sharpen his knife. Um, anyway, is he still with us? He is. He's not in good health. He's, I, I'm not sure how much he's working anymore. But I I've, I've gotten to visit him two or three times. Um,
0: but uh, you know, just beautiful, beautiful people and. and interesting work so did you originally just start uh, wanting to buy some of this stuff from them and
1: <laughs> yeah yeah and it was kind of like you know uh not that i've ever done such but you know it's kind of like you know buying crack for the first time you know <laughs> oh cool cheap sure i'll take some of that you know well you go home and you smoke it and uh next thing you know you're hooked man you know i need more Uh, but it didn't take me long to figure out that, uh, in order for me to remain somewhat financially solvent, not that I ever have been, uh, I had to, you know, uh, make the deal with the devil to sell as well as buy. I had to turn it into a business. Otherwise it just didn't make any sense. And that's fine because it's allowed me to keep it around and to learn from it and, uh, It's easy to over romanticize the the biographies of these people, Um, but at the same time the lives that were lived that shaped the work are often so interesting um, that inevitably that's part of the information. I think that that stuff can be talked about in a positive way where it's not, you're not just exploiting the biography of uh, a person who is operating outside of the mainstream.
0: If anybody wanted to contact you about, uh, they get in touch with you through your website?
1: Yeah, I have have a separate site for the gallery that's uh, gordongallery.net.
0: Kevin, I appreciate you uh, inviting me over here to your living room and uh, oh. and chatting with me. Sure, Otis.
1: Thanks for, thanks for uh, having me. Yeah.
0: Could take time. It sounds like the
1: dogs might want to. Oh, yes. Yes. One track minds.
0: <laughs> I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Kevin for inviting me into his. Dining room in East Nashville, Tennessee, and having this conversation. You can find out everything you need to know about Kevin at kg.kevingordon.net. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints; it would look beautiful in your house. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. It'll help us move up in the search rankings and help a lot more people find out about this show. But if you enjoy this show or you enjoy my music or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.